Welcome to the ANCDS podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode, I talk to Leanne Tor about evidence-based practice and more specifically about SpeechBite, which is an online searchable database of treatment studies that covers the scope of speech pathology practice. Leanne is a speech pathologist and a professor and researcher at the University of Sydney in Australia. She's also a National Health and Medical Research Council Senior Research Fellow and Principal Research Fellow of the University of Sydney. Leanne specializes in communication disorders following traumatic brain injury and stroke. Her research examines treatment efficacy and communication partner training for families, friends, and cares of people with acquired brain injury. Leanne's also director of SpeechBite. To start off our conversation, I asked Leanne to tell us a little bit about herself and how she became interested in doing research. Sure. So um, I was definitely a clinician and to be honest, had very little um, interest in research when I first started working. I was uh, I started out working in a very general rehabilitation role in a uh, small district hospital, and I mostly dealt with stroke rehab. But I also it was I was a sole clinician, so I was the only therapist there. So I had to deal with whatever came in the door, basically. Mm. And uh, uh, so. Uh, during that time, I, I was fortunate enough to treat a young woman who'd had a traumatic brain injury, and um, she actually had a significant aphasic um, problem. She was almost globally aphasic when I first started working with her, um, and I had the um, opportunity to work with her five days a week for as long as I wanted to. And so, of course, she um, she just made the most amazing gains and recovered beautifully and uh, she was about my age we were the mm. same age and she managed to she had just got married just before she had a brain injury and she was working and um, by the time we finished she'd gone back to work and she was she'd really made an excellent recovery and so I realized that this was what I really loved doing I thought I'd I could see that I could work with people my own age and that I could build their future for them and, and help help them with whatever they needed in terms of communication goals. And I got very excited about that. So I went and got myself a specialist TBI position. And really I worked clinically for about 15 years before I started to think about um, doing study mm. and uh, in a serious way. Uh, and I turned to becoming a researcher because of my uh, profound dissatisfaction with the assessments that I was using and the treatments I was giving. And I really felt, because a lot back then, that was in the 80s, um, TBI rehabilitation, I think, was in its infancy in terms of speech pathology. And we were really just trying to use aphasia tests and uh, make the best of that and aphasia tests weren't working and uh, were completely inappropriate for most people. So um, that was what made me embark on some research and I was really just wanting to get my head around what are, what are some better assessments that we could be doing with these people. Um, 
And then, of course, once I started, you know, I started a master's research master's degree and then converted that up to a PhD um, and then, you know, the rest, I, I, I ended up in academia and <laughs> I've been there ever since. <laughs> but yeah. I think everything that I ever have done in my research career has been really linked to my experiences clinically and it's, they're driven, it's driven by clinical experience and uh, and it still is. So that's still how I decide what sort of work I'm going to be doing is is my clinical background. Yeah. Well, and mm. in some of your writings, you've mentioned how big of an influence another clinician was to you, Mark Ilvesacker. Yeah, yeah. Thought his name had come up today, you know. <laughs> um, he, he was an extremely um, huge influence on, on my work, and he still is. And I still, you know, I've I've got Mark's books here around me, and I still, they they're um, they're just this treasure trove of ideas. He just he was he was an ideas guy, and so I'm I'm just, I was so lucky. I I was able to meet with him um, on a number of occasions, and eventually work with him. Uh, and he he brought to speech pathology i think it's really important for for us as a speech pathology profession to uh to really tap into other um ways of thinking and you know he had a philosophy background he was a philosopher before he became a speech pathologist um and he was such a clinician so philosophy was definitely not the right thing for him and thank heavens he moved away from that and became a speech pathologist because he could he just he had all these ideas about how we could help um, young people with brain injury predominantly. Um, so, yes, he had, because he came from a philosophy background and um, he really used a lot of concepts, you know, Vygotsky, educational psychology um, principles, he brought all these different perspectives to the very complicated problem of how do we assess and treat people with cognitive communication disorders after traumatic brain injury. And it was those insights, I think, that um, certainly when I first met him, which was in the um, in the mid-1990s, it just completely changed the way I thought about what I was doing with these with these people and how I was assessing them. And at the same time, I'd been influenced by Halliday and sociolinguistics and looking at the person in context and thinking about who they are and what world they move in and what kind of communication situations are they going to be faced with when they leave the, the brain injury unit and mm. what are their roles and, and what does that do to their language um, in, in those situations. And so there was, there, were, there was a lot of synchrony between what I was reading in sociolinguistics and what Mark was writing about. Um, with his contextualised communication focus. And so we, we, we had this synergy um, and that's, I think that's why um, t together we, we worked together so well and why he had such a big Im Im impact on me. Yeah, yeah. so I'm yeah. very grateful for him. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. in, in one of your papers, and, and I'm blanking right now on the name of the association, the Brain Injury Association. I think you were mm -hmm. president of for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Australasian Society for the mm. Study of Brain Impairment. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you mentioned this, the the conference that you went to in Virginia in the mid-90s in, in some uh-huh. market. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you came away from that conference with three words that kind of reverberated throughout your career, positive, a collaboration, and contextualized. Mm-hmm. And even some of the the papers that you wrote for that association, I see you mixing up talking about collaboration, both in the context of researchers collaborating with each other and mm-hmm. and um, collaboration amongst patients and caregivers or family members, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So you 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 have your hands in a lot of things, don't you? I do, and that's um, that's how I like working. I love yeah. working with people. I think um, I think it's becoming less possible in our current climate for lots of reasons to just be a lone researcher. Mm. And I think uh, to be a to to have good ideas, you have to surround yourself with other people who have good ideas and from different backgrounds. So um, collaboration really does make wonderful things happen if you're very fortunate to 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 make connections with people and to be able to really find out what their perspectives are and then combine those together with your own and I've done that in many different contexts so the the work I've done in TBI nearly all the work I've done in in looking at what you would think would be a speech pathology career which Mm. is assessing and treating communication after brain injury, I would not have been able to do it without my neuropsychological colleagues. Um, so Sky McDonald and Robin Tate particularly have had a huge influence on the way I think and um, and they've given a, what I've done, a, the, you know, that we, we can't just look at language in isolation. We've got to look at neuropsychological um, functions and how they interact and uh, so their their perspectives and their generosity have meant that I can do that, and um, so we still work closely together. Um, so yeah, I think collaboration is just so important, and it's something that I talk about with um, when I'm mentoring younger colleagues. You know, it's really look out for people you want to work with and um, approach them and and have conversations with them and. If you go to a conference, I use the, the example of um, meeting Mark Ilvesaka at that Williamsburg conference. Uh, I had just been at a CAC conference in Newport, Rhode Island, <clears throat> and I said to my husband, I don't think it's that far. We'll drive down there and, um, I'll, you know, I'd set up a 7.30am meeting with Mark. I'd never met him before. I didn't realise it was going to take us 11 hours to, <laughs> to drive <laughs> Anyway, we finally got down there very late at night and um, and it was the best thing I ever did. And it was about being, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote him a letter then because we didn't have computers and internet. So I wrote him a letter and obviously put it in the post and he wrote back to me and said, sure, I'll meet with you. And I think that's what people, you've got to be brave and just write to people and say, can I, can I talk to you? Can I tell you about my work, you know, um, and, and get some connections happening. Um, so I think yeah, it's 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 critical for creating new knowledge yeah. that we do that. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I have this impression mm-hmm. that 
there's quite a bit of collaboration going on amongst speech pathologists in Australia mm. and, and speech pathology researchers in Australia. Yeah, there is. And um, funding has helped make that happen, I've got to say. Um, we've been very um, fortunate that uh, I think it's, 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 it's happened over a course course of time and it's mostly about us all connecting together at conferences mm. um, and um, meeting together and saying how could we all work together and so the, the big the first big collaboration that I was involved with was actually in aphasia rehabilitation mm-hmm. um, and Linda Worrell um, is leading that that group and that um, that has developed into this quite big network of researchers postdoctoral fellows, PhD students, master's students, honours students. So we've got this uh, um, wonderful group and a community of practice of clinicians and people with aphasia and their families and stakeholders like the National Stroke Foundation here in Australia. And so we've we've developed this network um, which then has led to this explosion, I think, in in grant funding and really fantastic treatment projects. Mm. So there are a lot of treatment studies happening in Australia um, and we're getting a lot of research funding. And it's because we have we have collaborated and that's a key thing for getting funding um, is demonstrating that you are genuinely working together. And that has led to us being able to apply for grants and be successful and then get I mean, the, 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 our primary aim in all of this has been capacity building um, and developing our next generation of uh, researchers because we're not, none of us are getting any younger and <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we all could see, you know, how many more years are, are we all going to be working in aphasia rehabilitation? Well, who knows? But it's, we want to make sure we've, we're leaving it all in good hands. And we are so our so our centre of research excellence in aphasia rehabilitation. Um, at the end of five years, we had thirty nine PhDs enrolled um, wow. in that centre. So there was this really was an explosion. And so a lot of those PhDs are now going on and, and doing postdoctoral work. And um, and we're kind of we're still applying for grants to to give them more work. So it's it's um, it's it's a bit of a snowballing effect. Mm. Um, and then the same things happened with uh, that provided a bit of a model and then I was involved with Sky and um, a group of brain injury researchers and it was like, well, well why don't we do this for, for TBI? So we've now got the, the Moving Ahead Centre of Research Excellence and that's the same kind of deal, you know. It's a, it's a group of um, eight chief investigators from all over Australia who pulled resources and that is very multidisciplinary that one because that's that's speech pathology neuropsych um um psychology um occupational therapy um and we're we've we're we're tackling the issue of psychosocial rehabilitation after tbi from many different perspectives so that has been a wonderful collaboration as well and i think central to all these um the success of these enterprises has been that is the issue of trust yeah. and uh, and being generous with each other. So, um, you know, to, to get into something like this, you have to be willing to share something 
um, with the group and trust that uh, that you'll all be working on it together. And I think that's the essence of collaboration and that trust for, for both of those groups has been, a lot of it's been based on friendships and, uh, you know, that we, that we know each other, we trust each other, we like working with each other um, and it's for the greater good, if yeah. you like. So yeah. in some cases it's, you know, you've got to leave your egos at the door kind of thing and um, think, well, we're doing this for a bigger reason. Yeah, well, it's very motivating, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, mm, it is, and yeah. it's it's and it's easy to be it's easy to be productive in that environment mm-hmm. because um, you know I mean I, I I don't know about what it's like in the United States, but here in Australia we have you know clear guidelines. You're supposed to publish this amount of papers a year if you work in university, and you're supposed to get this amount of grants and. And when you're working in these collaborations, that that all just happens. You know, like I can fulfil my publication quota in the first three months of the year because we're we're all collaborating on collaborating on each other's PhD, student mm. supervisions, and postdocs, and these grants, and so there's lots of stuff happening. It's very stimulating, mm. and I find that I'll be doing something with the affiliate. And I think, God, that would be fantastic. We could use this bit with some TBI research. And so it's sort of, there's a lot of cross-fertilisation going on as well of ideas. So um, I, I can only see good coming out of it if, if, if you can collaborate. And what we had to do with particularly the aphasia one was really sit down and, you know, when we, and Linda Worrell, so I can't take responsibility for this at all but she looked at what the state of play was in terms of research here and there was a lot of research going on in impairment based approaches mm-hmm. and then there's there's this functional approach you know which is now becoming more broader in terms of how we think about functional approaches to but they the, never the two met you know so people would be squirreling away doing you know syntax treatment or whatever hey. And then there's people looking at everyday communication situations. And so the whole point, one of the whole points of of that centre was to let's bring those two things together. Let's see if we can identify researchers that are clearly one or the other and see if we can, you know, get the people who are doing impairment-based treatment to start thinking about function, how to to get that bigger picture in their research and vice versa. And uh, that... That meant that people had to start talking to each other that they may not have been having conversations before, and I think it's actually been a it's 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 led people in in new directions. Um, you know, we've got a lot of research happening here in Western Australia in Indigenous um, populations that that kind of developed out of out of this centre of research excellence, and um, that that. Um, there, there's been new directions happen out of this that we didn't see coming as well, and that's been really nice to see as well. Fantastic yeah. research. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of your projects has been SpeechBite. Yeah. Um, it's been up since, I think, what, about 2008? That's right. Yep, we launched yeah. in May. Yeah. yeah, 2008. Can you give us a brief description of what that is? So SpeechBite uh, – really developed because of my involvement with another collaborative project, which was PsychBite. And PsychBite 
um, was developed by Robin Tate and Sky McDonald. You'll notice these names coming up all the time and Michael Purtis's and originally Anne Mosley. And Anne Mosley was a physiotherapist who helped develop the Pedro website. So all of these websites are related because they all provide um, the best evidence for, um, in the case of Pedro, it was physiotherapy. In the case of Psychbite, it's all behavioural interventions following acquired brain impairment. And uh, I worked on Psychbite for many years and, uh, and it, it's still running. It's, it's a wonderful resource for the broader area of acquired brain injury and it certainly has some speech pathology papers on there. Um, is the, so, are, so they, are the, is, the, is the speech pathology uh, papers on Psychbite, is that, I mean, are, have they covered the neurogenic end of the spectrum as far as language and and cognition but um speech bite is picking up the swallowing the voice etc then the pediatrics yeah yeah so so the psych bite website when we developed that we really were just looking at what we call behavioral interventions or psychological interventions so motor motor speech for example was excluded dysphagia was excluded. We really were focusing on um, behavioural manifestations um, and language and communication was certainly included and that was why I was part of that group. Um, and they still are. So so there's, there is a little bit of a doubling up across these two databases. But um, by 2006, um, I could see that, you know, there was o- the other one that was around then was OT Seeker which was the occupational therapy database. And it occurred to me that we didn't have one for speech pathology and mm. it, it, we didn't and we really just had acquired brain injury covered. We didn't have any other part of the scope of speech pathology. So um, I approached Speech Pathology Australia for some seeding funding and they came to the party and gave us um, enough money to get to, to get a pilot up and running and to try and to, to get it to launch, which we did in 2008. So that was a, a, a lot of work because that speech bite covers the entire scope of what a speech pathology speech pathologist may reasonably be expected to, to do or may do in the future. So we've tried to be a little bit visionary um, and include other areas. So, for example, uh, a lot of the pharmacotherapy papers that were coming out then, you know, it's obviously not a speech pathologist delivering the drugs, yeah. but the but the the um, outcomes are going to be very communication um, or, or dysphagia-oriented. So we've, we've included papers like that. We've included surgical papers where a speech pathology outcome um, is part of that um, treatment study. So uh, it, it's turned into quite a, a big enterprise and we're approaching now we've got almost 5,000 papers listed mm-hmm. on speech bite um, and it's it's different to some people say well how's it different to medline or PubMed or you know you can just look up papers on there what's special about speech bite and the thing that's special about speech bite is that we've gone through and um, gone through um, nine databases and hand-picked papers that's, that fit criteria that 
that are of interest to speech pathologists. So the paper has to have data in it. It has to it has to be about a treatment that a speech pathologist would reasonably be involved with. Um, uh, yeah, there, there, there's there's a set criteria, and so it cuts down the length of time you'd be searching. So mm. you might search for all the papers that are related to traumatic brain injury, for example, and cognitive communication on speech bite. And I don't know how many papers we'd have on there, maybe a couple of hundred. Whereas if you did a search on PubMed, you might get 3,000 hits of because communication gets picked up so often. And no one's got time to look through 3,000 papers. Right. Um, the other thing we've done is indexing the papers is we've made sure people can, if you just want to find systematic reviews, you can just look for systematic reviews or you can just look for randomised controlled trials um, or you might just be interested in single case methodology in relation to aphasia, for example. So you can search according to the method. And the other special thing that um, all these databases do is we look at the methodological quality of a paper from the from all the um, group comparison studies, which are randomised controlled trials or non-randomised controlled trials, and we rate those according to what we call the Pedro scale. And that gives us a bit of a snapshot about what risks of bias might be present in that paper. And if there's a lot of risks of bias in a paper, so if a paper gets a low Pedro score, that is telling us that maybe we need to proceed with caution in looking at the findings of that paper because there may be problems with the way the data was um, reported. Mm. Um, so it's uh, it, it gives people an indication of what what, are, what some papers, you know, if, if they're getting scores of 6 out of 10 or more on, on a Pedro scale, then we're, we're saying that you can be um, reasonably confident about the robustness of those findings. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's helping clinicians and researchers and students. We've got a lot of students using SpeechBite. In fact, in Australia, um, all students use SpeechBite because it's, it's written into our competency-based occupational standards document that all our speech pathology students must be consulting evidence when they're developing their treatment plans and SpeechBite is named as, as a prime resource that they could use for that. So most of the students do it because it's a shortcut. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's an easy way for them to quickly get a snapshot of what, what's the best treatment that's been published in the last five years right. in a you, particular area. You know, I know this is an, an over, uh, oversimplified approach to, to thinking about the Pedro rating scale and whatnot, but it is a rating scale, and so it does imply that some studies are stronger than others in terms of their design mm-hmm. and methods. Uh, do you have a sense of where does, for me as a clinician, right? Mm-hmm. at what point do I have confidence that the results that are reported are valid? Right? Is that number 5 out of 10? Is it 4 out of 10, 6 out of 10? Mm-hmm. Well, five, 5 or 6 has been published as the kind of the cutoff. So once mm-hmm. you're getting down to 3 and 4 out of 10. And it, it's it's not a statement. Some people get this confused about we're saying 
it's the treatment is no good. You might have an absolutely fantastic treatment, but it was just poorly reported. Right. Um, or, or the study was published 20 years ago. So we know more about research design now than we did 20 years ago. And so, you know, the consort statement, for example, has let us know that, um, you know, if you want to publish in the British Medical Journal, you have to fill out the consort statement. And that means you, the, the quality of the reporting is so much better now than it was 20 years ago. Mm. Um, so it, it may just be that, that that's the issue. And so if it's a paper that was published in 1982, um, actually we've got some good well-reported studies in 1982, but it's, it's, it, you've got to make a judgment about, you know, whether you think it's a compelling enough case. And ultimately it's up to you as a clinician to determine, well, do I want to try that treatment or not? Do I think that treatment might work with this patient that I'm seeing? Um, so I would never want I would never want to see some somebody look at a Pedro scale and it's three out of ten and think oh I'm not even going to look at that treatment. I think you you need to think about um, you know use what we know about what evidence based practice is, which is your expert opinion, what the patient's needs are, the context that they're in, and the evidence. Right. Um, and it it may just be that that treatment hasn't been adequately evaluated and so the study's yet to be done um so but what it does give um it does give us some indication of of where there may be a problem with the paper so and some some things are more of an issue than others so for example one of the the big problems we see in reporting is whether groups were similar at baseline mm. and whether that's reported um and if the groups aren't similar at baseline, so if your treatment group is already doing so much better than your control group, it's very hard to then attribute improvement to the treatment that they're about to go through because they were better anyway. So that that's number four on the Pedro scale. That's something that we, we look at. Um, and it's actually hard to get a yes on number four because mm. we, we look critically at are they the same in, court, in terms of their prognostic variables are they the same in terms of their severity and are they the same in terms of the the outcome measure that's being used in the trial so um it's it's worth looking carefully at that and and once you know that's what you're looking for the, the thing about the pedro scale that we're finding is really beneficial to students and clinicians is that they it's giving them the framework to know what to look for when they're reading a treatment paper because um, one of the most frequently reported problems with clinicians um, having trouble with treatment papers is, is understanding the stats and knowing about research design. So Pedro does give us a bit of a snapshot about, well, these are the kinds of things that a big group of experts, it was, it was um, developed based on criteria and a Delphi consensus process, and um, that... that process has led to the development of these 10 items that we know are, are quite important that we, we should be you know you should know one way or the other yeah. um what what a, what a um, research has done in a trial and it's all about controlling risk of bias that's that's really what it's all about not about whether the treatment's a good treatment or not sure sure mm, mm, mm. <laughs> cute dog <laughs> <laughs> What kind of dog is it? Well, 
the ironing man's obviously here. Um, uh, he's a Maltese terrier crossed with a, a poodle. Oh. He's very cute. He's a little white fluffy ball with nothingness. <laughs> very noisy, as you can hear. <laughs> Um, well, you've, you've, you've kind of alluded to the fact that one of the purposes of speech bite is to try and reduce the, the barriers to entry, right? To en- encourage use of the literature and things like that. And yes, yeah. what, what do you think are the, the biggest barriers that speech pathologists face in, in doing that? Because... The the literature out there is not so good as as far as reporting how many, you know, or how often speech pathologists are making use of journal articles, mm-hmm. etc. The um there's there's a couple of barriers, uh, and this has been studied uh in surveys of speech pathologists, and there was one survey of, of hundreds of speech pathologists and the the it always comes out the biggest barrier is time. Mm. So people do not have time to be searching for journal articles and they don't have time to read a whole journal article and synthesise it and critique it and then read another journal article. So it's – it's, and I, I can honestly say over – this year it will be 30 years that I've been practising and there is a seismic shift in, in – what, how people are working in their clinical environments in terms of the sheer numbers of people they're having to see, um, the pressures that are upon them, the reporting mm. that's required of them. Um, it, you know, it, it, when I started work, I was given half a day a week to go to the library and find out, mm. you know, that's your time. Um, and yeah. that, that was just wonderful. So I think time's one thing. I think... Um, Understanding what people have, are reading is another thing. I think some of these treatment papers are extremely complex um, to the point and the statistics are becoming more and more complicated as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just understanding what does this paper mean, is this treatment, should I be doing it or not, is that a strong, is that a big effect size, um, trying to make those judgments is difficult. Um, and I also think there, in some cases, people um, get in. They've, they've learnt a certain regime of treatments, and they've practiced them over a number of years, and they generally work. Mm-hmm. Um, so why would I why would I go and look for more treatment approaches? Because what I know what I'm doing. So there's a there's sometimes a bit of that as well that um, the they're comfortable with what they're doing and, and um, confident with what they're doing. Um, and the danger or the risk of that is that there may well be a fantastic treatment that is was published last week that you, you that is much more efficient and effective than the one you're doing. So for me, it's it's a danger to be complacent about um, the the your, your treatment repertoire that you're using. Um, and it, it's it's effortful. It's effortful to think about learning about a new treatment, how am I going to do it, how am I going to incorporate that in my program. Um, so uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why evidence-based practice um, is, is difficult 
Yeah, because as you suggest, things have changed and, and productivity standards have changed a lot for me. Yeah. You know, when I yeah. I mean, that was, that was why we developed SpeechBot because we thought, well, at least if we can cut the time down that of searching and we've critically appraised some of these papers and we've sorted them according to level of evidence so that if you've only got 10 minutes, mm. if you're lucky enough to have 10 minutes to look up something, you want to go and find a systematic review and and say, well, what what what's been published? And we're getting a lot more systematic reviews um, happily on SpeechBite. So there are some nice summaries of the evidence coming out. So all of a sudden, you've got a shortcut to well, at least I can have a look and and know. Um, I think also certainly here in Australia, the times are changing a bit because. The way um, disability and um, treatment services are being funded is changing radically so that um, patients, there's this, you know, phrase patient-directed care, client-directed care, patients are now um, being given the, the money directly from our government to go and seek out the treatment that they need. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, clients and patients generally are becoming much better informed about the kinds of treatments they want. Right. And, um, and so there's this focus on um, shared decision-making. And I went to a big international meeting here in Sydney last year um, and it, it, the focus was on how do we offer our patients options in terms of what is the best, what are the best treatment options available to you. Um, and most of the work's been done in cancer. We, we, I don't think speech pathology are quite on board with it yet. But um, they, they would have these decision aids and, you know, this decision aid says that these studies say that, you know, chemotherapy and radiotherapy are the best combination for you. But then there's this other study that's, that says this, this takes 10 weeks whereas this one only takes six weeks. So, so it's, it's offering the patient... Um, the opportunity to engage in a discussion about their own health care and their own needs, but it's all based on best evidence. Mm -hmm. So I think for us the next generation of tools, if you like, um, in this space are going to be shared decision-making tools and decision aids. And to, to develop those, we're going to need to know what our best evidence is. Yeah. Some of it's better than others in some, some areas of speech pathology. Yeah. It's hard for me to, to imagine that happening in, in acute care, but uh, in, in outpatient, I've certainly mm -hmm. commonly talked to my patients about, you know, here's the menu of options that we have, and here's kind of what we know about the results that mm -hmm. we get with these different uh, treatment approaches. And, uh, and generally speaking, my patients are able to to follow that and and make decisions and yeah i mean i think we i think we we're dealing with a unique population in that you know we're obviously oftentimes dealing with people with a communication disability or a, and or a cognitive problem yeah so um we have even more responsibility to offer that information in a way that they can access it and that is something i've asked um the the 
chair of the scheme here in Australia, how are you? How are we going to make this happen? Because they've they've got a, a, a good handle on you know how how do we offer information to people with physical disabilities? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they they were talking about you know we're we're going into the cognitive era, which means we're going to have to adapt what we're doing so that so that we can fully engage um, these people and their families in, in decision-making. Um, and speech pathologists are going to have a key role in this because we're the ones who can often do the translation. We're often the ones who have the resources to make things aphasia-friendly or to simplify them so that someone with a significant cognitive impairment can understand them. So evidence-based practice is going to, I, I think it's a step up until now, I still think primarily speech pathology. We all think we're doing patient-directed care, <laughs> but ultimately at the end of the day, I think we still you certainly offer the choices that you're willing to give in terms of treatment, but quite often we say, well, I think this would be the best treatment for you. You know, we're going to, we're going to give you six weeks of such and such treatment, see how that goes. So... I don't think we're I don't think we're completely on top of how to really engage patients and for them for them to actually be making the decision it's jointly a, with us. It's a hard habit to break and I don't I don't know if it's a habit <laughs> or what, but I fully subscribe to this client-centered care approach. Mm-hmm. But if, mm-hmm. if I'm paying attention, I catch myself over and over again making Right, yeah. You know, I'm better mostly making small moves that mm-hmm. that are not client centered, and mm-hmm. oftentimes that that is a result of my kind of in, maybe slight impatience and rushing in to provide a solution mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, well, that's what we're bred to do. We're yeah. bred to go in and help fix people and it's a cultural thing and it's it links back to what I looked at a long time ago 20 years ago about how therapists talk to patients and you know there's the power imbalance there where there is the expert they've come to us for the answers and in some cases we do need to just give the answers you know in some cases and I think that's particularly so in acute care I think Like you say, I think it's there. There are times where we do have to come in and say, "This is this is how we're going to proceed here," because the patient doesn't have that knowledge, and that's not the time for them to to be burdened with that, if you like. But I think it's going to be a cultural for it to be truly to have truly client directed care. We're going to have to let go of some of those roles that we've had in the past and be willing to ask questions and get opinions and um, offer people real choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all about choice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so speech bite mm-hmm. is removing the barriers to, yeah. to, to, finding, yeah. to finding articles, but we still have the other barrier that you were talking about, which is well, I still have to read the article, and I still have to understand um, the treatment mm-hmm. and and figure out whether it's appropriate for my client and whether it fits the constraints that we're under. All the context, yeah. Is is yeah, the, yeah. is there anything that you think that uh, 
authors, researchers could do better to facilitate that? You know, we've talked about this in our SpeechBite team, you know, what what more could we do? Yeah. And um, when I was with SoCBite, one of the ways we tried to get around this or to start addressing it was um, to to do what we called summaries of, of treatment evidence. So what we did was go through and um, pick all the papers that had strong methodological quality on the Pedro scale. Um, and we also picked the strongly rating single case experimental designs because we now have um, the Robin T scale to look at single case experimental designs. And so we, we, I think we came up with anything above six out of 10 on both of those scales. And then we proceeded to do a little summary and it was really, the, the it was a bit like the cookbook approach of this is what you need to know about this study. So they had they did it with 20 participants. They did four weeks of therapy. This was what they did in the four weeks. Um, these were the assessments they used. Um, so I think there's still room for us to, to and that's something clinician. Uh, sorry, yeah, clinicians ask me all the time. How can we, how can we get a snapshot of these treatments and and how to, to just pick up something and quickly do it? Um, so that's yet to be done, and that, that requires funding and mm. someone to go through and do that. But I, I think just even. Once we know something's of reasonable quality and we can trust the findings, that we, we may be able to summarise it. Um, the other thing that clinicians are often saying is a problem is, well, you know, I can go on speech, but I can get the abstract, but I can't get the article. And um, so how do you get the article? And what we've just started doing is listing separately all the articles we currently have on open access mm. because more and more people are publishing on open access. It costs you money as a researcher to do that. Um, but it's happening more and more. So I think just getting the full paper is also an advantage that a lot of clinicians, you know, they don't have access to yeah. um, papers published in brain injury. or um, so, so I think just getting out there, what making the, re making the evidence more available, I think would have to help. Yeah, but, you know, one of the one of the studies out there of, of American SLPs mm -hmm. who have uh, free access to the ASHA journals was that mm -hmm. about half of those individuals make use of mm -hmm. have ever accessed yeah, those that's, journals. That's kind of scary, isn't it? When you think yeah. of all that, all that. I, I, you know, I, I think. We, I think we need summaries. I think we need to make it even easier for people. I, I, I can't see another way around that. I mean, some journals, um, they ask you as, a, as an author to have a quick summary at the beginning, you know, what does this add, you know, what what's the I, – I think um, I know here some of the insurance agencies are certainly doing their own summaries, so they'll do – one page per journal article and uh, in determining what they will fund and what they won't fund. Mm. So, um, you know, I think it, different people need this information for different reasons um, and you can be assured that funding agencies are looking at evidence carefully, insurance agencies are looking at 
what they will and won't fund. Um, and so we need to be careful about how we present that information so that we're not depriving people of, the, you know, what could well be the best treatment for them. Um, so I'm, I'm fully conscious of that as well, that we're, we're representing um, what, what is best evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fraught area. Right. But, but I think clinicians, you know, if half the clinicians aren't reading journal articles at all, that is a scary prospect because that means if they're still delivering treatment that they may have learnt, you know, like I graduated from my undergraduate degree in 1986 and I would hate to think that there were people who had not moved on from 1986. Yeah. So, um, but maybe there are. So um, that that's something that the, you know, the, the profession needs to be trying to address. Well, th this uh, particular study, and I'm, I may not get this name right, by Nail Chiwitalu. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Bernstein Ratner. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the year exactly, but one of the other questions they asked in their survey was frequency of use and, and the helpfulness of information. And the most common thing were continuing ed and, mm -hmm. and going to your colleague for, yeah. for advice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then after that was websites. And then after that was books and textbooks and then journal articles. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think the other, the other big area that's going to hopefully change this situation is implementation science mm. and um, the whole concept of knowledge translation. And I, I think we know that continuing ed doesn't always work. So you go and sit in a workshop, it sounds good on the day, you go back to your workplace the next day and it doesn't ever translate yep. into changed practice. Um, so we've got to find another way for people to learn about research and, and actually put it into practice. And one of the central tenets of what we've done with our, um, our Centre of Research Excellence in aphasia here in Australia was... Um, getting clinicians involved from the get-go about what research we were embarking upon. And we developed this um, website called the Australian Aphasia Rehabilitation Pathway, which really applies, I think, worldwide. I don't think it's just about Australia. It, it, mm -hmm. it looks at eight different components of, of the path that a person with aphasia will pass through, in, right from when they re are referred when they're in the ambulance having their stroke, referred to speech pathology as a treatment. And when we were developing this pathway, we didn't want to just be a bunch of researchers sitting in a room coming up with a pathway. So that's why we ended up with these 200 clinicians. And we had workshops with them and they looked at earlier iterations of the pathway and um, what it was a knowledge translation um, exchange process. And we went back to them uh, on a number of occasions with workshops and Google groups and Google drives and we got them engaged in what's useful for you. Mm. How are you going to be able to use this website? And the way the website looks now 
which is free, by the way. Anyone can go and look at it. Um, it's got a lot of resources on there, and it was developed so that it, it could be usable for clinicians and students. And I think that's what we need to do more and more as researchers is getting people, before we write our grant, so, for example, I've just written a grant, well, I ran it past clinicians to say, and, and the New South Wales Health, you know, our local health department, to say, if I did this, would it be useful? Is this something that you could integrate into every stroke unit in New South Wales? So I think it's um, it's changing the way we do business in terms of engaging clinicians earlier in the process and finding out from them what do they want, what do they need, and then providing it to them in a way that, that's accessible. You know, I think e-health is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know we've, we've got a... a um, and, you know, telepractice I know is taking off big time in the States. So... Um, but we want to be doing the right things on e-health. You know, we don't want to be just prescribing brain training exercises. We want to be giving targeted um, treatments that are, are going to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. Um, so I think there's lots of ways um, that we can start getting clinicians engaged in knowing about research by getting them involved earlier. Mm -hmm. in the process and not at the end, not thinking the first time a clinician's going to hear about my research is when I present it at ASHA right. in a seven-minute presentation. You know, I don't think that's good enough anymore. I think they need to have, when I present it at ASHA, it's going to be, oh, I remember that. Um, you know, I've been in touch with that process all the way through. I might have helped with data collection. I might have helped with um, contributing to what the best design of that treatment was. Yeah. Because if you can get people in earlier, they're much more likely to engage with and use that evidence that you've come up with at the end. Yeah. So. And you have to yeah. wonder, I mean, these days, I mean, why are we limiting ourselves to, to the written page? I reread some of your TBI treatment literature recently mm -hmm. to prepare for this interview and went mm -hmm. and looked at the your TBI Express website, webpage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I know those videos were kind of just teasers for mm -hmm. uh, for one of the products that you guys offer, mm -hmm. but you know it was really nice to be able to to see concretely what you mm -hmm. were talking about. In in this case, it was uh, they were actors, weren't they? They were actors. Yeah, the, the yeah. Guy, they yeah, did a, the they did a good job. Brain injury. They did a great job. Yeah, they were professional actors. I mean, we we um. We got a production company to, to do those videos for us. And the whole point of that website and the videos was um, to, and in fact, like the manual, I don't make any money out of the manual. That goes, it's a it's published pretty much at cost. Um, and we've just made it an interactive PDF so that you can just buy it online. But um, so it's much cheaper. So the whole point of that was to get the findings of that trial out there so that people would use it. And mm -hmm. so last year, for example, we had, um, you know, 6,000 people or whatever watch those videos. And I've just come back from um, Europe and the UK and people are using those videos with all sorts of people, with students, with right. um, families, with carers, with paid paid carers in care facilities. And it's really to, to, to get out there, this is what I meant when I said collaboration. Um 
collaboration is uh, these things. And th here, here is a, a mother talking to her son and this is what it's like when she's not collaborative and this is like what it's like when she is collaborative. And um, I think we need to, um, to do more and more of that. You know, mm. we've got a researcher here, Tammy Hoffman, who's done a lot of work about looking at availability of treatment resources that come out of clinical trials and mm -hmm. guess mm -hmm. what they're not very they're not very available yeah um and so what we've tried to do here in australia is every time we do a big clinical trial there is something at the end of it that a clinician can buy pretty much at cost mm -hmm. so we're not making money out of it but so that that treatment is out there those manuals are available those assessments that we develop are available um and, you know, quite often we're making them available for free. So it's really, I think it's incumbent upon us, particularly if we're being given grant funding, um, public money, that those resources should be available to clinicians at the end of those trials, if they work. I mean, if the trial's not successful, then forget it. But, it, but if, if you've got an effective treatment, we need to make it available. And so t the TBI Express website, um, was developed expressly for that purpose to get to for research translation to start happening. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, where's uh, where's Speechbite going in the future? Well, Speechbite is uh, uh, it's funnily enough it's used by clinicians from over 170 countries. I think our last count was 177 countries. Mm. And uh, we we get somewhere we get about nine or ten thousand unique visitors a month to Speechbite, um, and I, and hit rate is like four million hits a wow. year. So it's really being used a lot. Um, but uh, ironically, we we're broke, so we don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so um, Speech Pathology Australia have consistently given us some funding. We have a half time project manager who runs Speechbite and puts papers up every month and helps us with rating papers and we've got some volunteer raters and how many raters um, do you have we don't have many at the moment we usually operate with between 12 and 20 raters because every paper has to be rated twice mm. um and then if there's any discrepancy between those two raters then we have a third raider rater paper so um we're confident about the rating ratings when they go up um and, you know, our Speechbite team, which, you know, runs out of Sydney Uni, um, we rate papers too. So um, it takes me about 15 minutes to rate a paper. Mm. So um, we we do that ourselves. But long-term, Asher are going to give us some funding for Speechbite, which is very good of them. America is the second largest user of Speechbite after Australia um, and then the U United Kingdom. Um so we have a great list of things we'd love to do, but it's really um, incumbent on funding. So um, we've got a crowdfunding campaign at the moment to raise money. Mm. So you can go on the Speechbite website and donate. We've got a donate button. Cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm not sure where the future of Speechbite will be, but uh, at the moment we've got a very dedicated, hardworking team and I, it's just... It's too important to, to let it go, and we've we've tried to keep it free um, because it is being used in Asia and Africa and mm. 
you know, Eastern Europe and it's being used in um, developing nations as well. And so I'm keen to try and keep it free. And it's really important for students. Yeah. Um, our speech pathology students and other students um, are definitely using it a lot. So um, we're, we're very proud of SpeechBite. Yeah, well, the nice thing about the interface is the search is all the options are they're clinically relevant options to choose. Yeah. 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 No, it's been it's been it's been prepared for clinical use. That that yeah. was the whole point of it was to to make to to cut time to um to to provide some kind of you know it's the it's the repository of all treatment effectiveness evidence in speech pathology. Mm. So um, in one place. So that that's why it's being used. Um, but clearly um, we'd like more people to be using it. And I think there's a lot of scope for more people to be using it in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed you have an online rating training program. Yeah. What's, what's the purpose yes. of that? So um, – when we developed um, the, when we started using the Pedro scale, we wanted to make sure that people um, would know what it was and and learn about it. So, um, and particularly a lot of our students rate papers themselves. So if they're doing a systematic review, for example, and they need to do some kind of um, evaluation of the methodological quality of all of RCTs, they'll use the Pedro scale. And that's being used universally, um, not only in speech pathology, but physiotherapy, it's their gold standard um, measure. And it was like, well, how do you learn how to use the Pedro scale? You know, what do you look for? So so we've um, we've developed a tutorial, which is free. Um, anyone can go on and do it. Um, we just ask you to log in so that we keep track of how many people are doing it. Um, but it gives some really clear demonstrations of how to read a paper if you're going to do a Pedro rating, um, the, the parts of a paper that are most relevant, uh, which are usually the abstract, the method and the results. Um, normally when I read a paper, I don't read the introduction or the discussion. <clears throat> um, so there are shortcut ways to rate papers and looking for keywords and to to. To do a couple of things, we, we wanted to increase um, clinicians' knowledge of how to rate papers because that was a reported um, issue for them. We also wanted to increase the report, the way researchers report their clinical trials. Mm. So um, I published a paper some years ago where we looked at the methodological quality of aphasia treatment studies, for example, and the, the mean rating out of 10 was 4 four out of ten was your average score for an aphasia treatment report, um, which we called modest at best, I think, was how we described it in that yeah. paper. So, you know, the, and there were things that people, we know they're doing them, they're just not writing them in their research reports. They're not writing them in their journal articles. Um, so it was really about improving the the reporting of clinical trials as well. Mm. And uh, Pedro, the Pedro team have just published a paper where they've demonstrated that the Pedro scores have increased on Pedro in the last um, ten, five to ten years because uh, they've been around longer than us. So I'm hoping that happens in speech pathology, that the quality of our reporting gets better because people are more tuned into key aspects. So it was 
Uh, there were many reasons why we put that training up. Yeah, so many of our studies are single subject designs. Yes, um, I believe you have plans to start rating those. Studies? We have started rating them. Oh, okay. Um, we have started. Uh, we're using this scale called the Robin T, Robin T scale, and the Robin T scale um, was published by Robin Tate. Um, and I'm on that paper. There's a number of us. And we've just actually, Robin's just uh, published the manual, which is a big breakthrough um, about how to rate single-case experimental design papers. Uh, it, it's uh, not an easy scale to learn, but um, I think it's extremely comprehensive. It's using um, all the best features that we know are in good, well-designed single-case experimental designs. Um, you get a score out of 30 on a Robin T scale. And we have used it. Um, we haven't put the ratings up yet, but that's our next new frontier is to um, put up these ratings. We've started with traumatic brain injury papers um, as the first port of call, but it it's eventually there'll be training about how to how to do a, a, the Robin T as well. You know, this is it's a big enterprise. These it's, you cannot do a Robin T rating in 15 minutes. What, what we've learned is that single-case experimental designs are so much more complicated than an RCT. Mm. And to get to get and, – and there is also so much variability about the quality of a, of a single-case experimental design. So we've drawn a line in the sand about what we consider is an experimental design as opposed to not – and we'll only be rating what we consider true experimental designs that have elements of control in there. Um, so obviously, you know, a multiple baseline design would be considered, um, that'd be something we'd rate the quality of, or an ABA design would be something we'd rate, whereas an AB we wouldn't. Mm. So um, there's going to be um, some hard decisions about what we will and what we won't rate. Um, but it's it's been a really useful experience just to um, to look at the scope of what we call single case experimental designs in speech pathology. And you're right, it's the vast majority of our papers. So um, that's the difference between SpeechBite and Pedro. Pedro don't have single case experimental designs on their website, whereas we do. Yeah. And I'm so glad we did because we'd have lost most of the aphasia treatment research if we hadn't have put them on. Right. Um, and uh, it, it's there's people are still doing them because that that's the nature of our field, you know. That that's quite often the best design to be using, and certainly the Oxford um, levels of evidence. So the Oxford Centre for Levels of Evidence have published a matrix where they've said that a, a randomised end of one trial is level one evidence. So they've they've put it right up there at the top we have very few randomized n of one trials um and so i think from a methodological point of view um in the future we will start to see randomization being put in as an element in the, the, the single case experimental design and that will strengthen what we're doing significantly um, and we're still learning about that and figuring out how, how you do that but um i think single case experimental designs have a have a good future and I think they definitely have a good future in speech pathology because of the you know the unique nature of the many of the people that we see. Mm. 
and and randomization in in single subject designs that's altering the phases, the duration of the phases, the alternating exactly. of the phases. Yeah, so you randomly allocate whether someone gets A or B or C, um, or you randomly um, choose how long a leading phase might be. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's new ways of doing that. And um, the Oxford Centre has certainly recognised that if you do that, you've got a, you've got a pretty solid design. Because it's all about control, right? It's all about whether you, you can see that what you've done is, it, it, that any benefit is due to the treatment, the introduction of a treatment. So that's why we're that's why we're we're sticking with single case designs. That's yeah. why we're hanging in there with them. Well, Leanne, thank thank you very much. Uh, you know, we talked so much about speech bite. We never got around to talking about your work with uh, TBI patients. But I hope you'll come back on sometime in the future, <laughs> and, and we can talk about that because I think the work that sure. you're doing there is really interesting, and I encourage people to go and. Um, check out TBI Express. Um, we'll p maybe put a link up on the show notes so they can get familiar with that. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah that'd yeah. be great, yeah. Because yeah. uh, the more people who use it, I mean, it's up there for people to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been really, really great. great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit ancds.org.